0: Hey everyone, my name's Andrea and welcome to the May episode of our Literary Anything podcast. We're super excited to introduce you this month to Fiona McIntosh, who is speaking about her new novel, Dead Tide. This talk was recorded at the Marion Cultural Centre in front of a packed out crowd of people. It ran overtime because she's an amazing talker and no one wanted her to stop and leave. So we're really pleased that people who weren't able to make it will be able to share the talk and have a listen this month.
1: Thank you well I was told 80 people were coming tonight so hello to all those people at the back I've got a spotlight in my face I can't see you but I can just see shadows so wow thank you very very much for all coming out this evening so we're here to talk about Jack Hawksworth delicious mm. yes I heard that I heard it too I know what you mean so to the gents who might be in the order is there a- Any men, there's a man over there. Are there any men, er, other men? Sorry, it's all about us tonight and how much we love Jack. Thank you to all of you who, who's read it? Has anybody read it yet? Oh, there's plenty of you. Okay, but there are also, so we'll be careful, let's not spoil anything. I'd like to thank the people who have bought it. We are number one in Australian fiction And we have been number one since Jack was released three weeks ago. So thank you, thank you. They keep trying to come at me. There are loads of writers coming at me, but we're fighting them off at the moment. So thanks very, very much. And it's very encouraging also to Australian authors to know you can do this. We can do it. We are, we're doing it. So, And I, it's my experience that a lot of readers in Australia love reading stories written by Australians. So it, it's, it's brilliant that this is happening. Anyway, to Jack... Now, Jack goes back a long way with me. Do you mind if I tell you how he, his incarnation, why he's even here walking amongst us? So I've got to take you back to the year 2000. Now, that's when I started writing. So I came to writing quite late. I was about staring at the barrel of turning 40, and I was working in the travel industry as a... My husband was a publisher of travel magazines, And I was the person that used to fill those magazines with advertising. And it was quite a a big, busy, sort of stressful job because it was full on all the time. And I was trying to raise twins and I was trying to be all things to all people. And I got to a point in around 1998, 1999, where I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I just was having some sort of crisis. And it probably was a midlife crisis where I was thinking... life's got to be better than this and I shouldn't have been thinking like that because I had a really lovely life but I was thinking like that and when I searched myself I thought well what could I do at this age you know you're turning 40 it's the end of the world you might as well kill yourself sort of thing so what could you do well you could go and have a facelift right that always is going through your mind. And I still, don't you all go like this in the, in the mirror? You think, oh, I forgot. I used to look like that. But anyway, so there was the facelift. There was the affair, you know, bit raunchy. Do I want to have an affair? No, I don't. Do I want to have a facelift? No, I don't. Do I want to go and find myself in Nepal? You know, there were all these thoughts. Do I want to buy a roadster and, you know, try and be young again? I, none of it was interesting enough. And then this idea just struck me. How about a book? How about you write a book? You used to read so much as a child and you used to love the idea only as a child of writing a book. It never occurred to me in adult life to ever think about something like that. But that was the one that felt the most dangerous, the most appealing but dangerous. And so I thought, okay, have a go. So I took a course in the year 2000 with Bryce Courtney. And I'm sure you all know Brilliant Bryce So I was starstruck to be sitting in this room with the maestro in front of me. And it was later that after the course, he just said to me, Fiona, you're the one, you're the one, you're going to go all the way. And I was gobsmacked, but I thought, well, riding high on his confidence, I'll do my best to see if I can do this. So I went home and I wrote a book really quickly and I wrote in fantasy. And I sent it off to the world's biggest publisher and the world's biggest publisher came back to me and said, we love this. Could you do three of them? And I was like, so to all the writers in the room who now will throw darts at pictures of me for that, it was the fairy tale, you know. And I said, yes, of course I can. And so... I wrote three books and they said, give us another three, give us another three. And so suddenly I was writing fantasy really quickly and it it was flowing. It was like the floodgates had opened. It was just flowing out of me. And finally, and I am going to make a point here, they, they said to me, could you stop, please? Because we cannot keep up with your production and I wanted to say but that's your fault not my. that's your problem not mine but they said Fiona you've got to slow down and I said I can't I can't slow down I'm doing it now I'm a full-time writer and I just want to keep going and they said well could you write something else and I could tell it was like a fob off they were just trying to distract me over here and I said like what and they said well just something else and I said no I haven't I I'm a fancy writer and they said, well, what do you read? And it's true, I didn't read fancy. I, I read it before I started writing it. But the minute you start writing into a genre, you get a bit worried about reading in that genre because you think, have you just stolen my idea? Or am I stealing your idea? You know, because there is that overlap that happens when you're writing crime or fantasy or anything. So I stopped reading fantasy so that I could write it without that fear. And I said, well, these days I read crime. I just, and they said, how much? And I said, well, I devour it. And they said, good, write us a crime and we'll publish it. Okay, so I wrote a crime and gave it to them. They were like, oh gosh, so fast, why? You know, so I wrote this crime and I said, so publish it. And they did, but they didn't want to publish me under my own name. They wanted to publish me under a pseudonym. Now, It's crazy, their reasoning, but their reasoning, I think, they didn't say it, but it was intimated. They didn't think readers could make up their own minds about what they wanted to read. They felt that we would confuse them if we had fantasy written by Fiona McIntosh and we had crime written by Fiona McIntosh, and I fought them tooth and nail. I said, I've got an existing audience. Why not give them the chance to read... Me and crime. No, no, no. So I had to come up with this pseudonym. And, of course, then they said, write another one. So I said, well, there it is. There's the other one. And they were like, oh, God, someone kill her. You know, so they brought these two books out under a, a pseudonym, a pen name. They were OK. The actual books were ball terrors. But the it didn't do well because I was a newcomer. When you're this strange name on a shelf and you've got one book, tell me, all of you, if you saw Fiona McIntosh, dozens of books, and Lauren Crow one book, you're going to be helplessly driven towards the Fiona McIntosh because she looks successful. She has so many books, so there must be. But the Lauren Crow could be just as good, but you're not prepared to give that person a chance until there are a few more books. And that's what happened to me. And they were stupid, and I hope they're listening somewhere. <laughs> for doing that anyway. So as it turned out, we just let it go because almost at the same time as the second book was coming out, I had been approached by Bryce to say, are you ready yet to do what you really want to do? And what I really always wanted to do was to write historical fiction. And so I said, I'm ready. Take me away. And he said, come on, you're coming with me. We're going to Penguin, and you're going to write fabulous historical fiction. And that's what I did for a number of years. Okay, so now I'm gonna bring you up to date. So 2020, we're all in lockdown, and the world can't get enough. We were all doing, we were devouring things we've never devoured before. How to make sourdough, (laughs) you know, how to knit how to garden. We were streaming television until our eyes were square. And what really happened for authors was we were reading books again. It was brilliant. We have never read so many books as we did during, I suppose, what we'll call now the lockdown years. So in 2020, I said to my publishers, look, let's bring the crimes out again. And they said, that's a good idea what crime books? And I said, oh, that's right. I've got the rights. You can have them. Bring them out. So they re-jacketed them, and we brought out Bye Bye Baby and Beautiful Death again some 12, 13 years later, thinking, I wonder how this will go, and it went brilliant, right? So it came out, new covers. Everybody was reading Jack and saying, this Jack's great, isn't he? He's quite sexy, quite lovely. And so Penguin said to me, could you write another one? And I'm busy over here with historical. And I said, I don't really want to write more crime. They said, yeah, but you need to because the audience wants more Jack. So I quickly wrote a book called Mirror Man that some of you might have read, which I really enjoyed writing. And they were back. It was We were on this awful loop. They came back and they said, could you do another one? And I was like, I don't, I just, I don't know how to do this all. But anyway, so this is how Dead Tide came about. And now they've, of course, I'll tell you what happened after that. So let me now, in that segue, bring you into Dead Tide and tell you a little bit more about it without spoiling anything for the people who haven't read it yet. So Dead Tide is Jack's fourth adventure, but we were all in lockdown when this was happening. And at the same time as Penguin was saying, we need another one, I was approached by a screen media company, and they said, we want to option the world of Jack Hawksworth for the small screen, which is very exciting. I could see Netflix. I could see BBC One. I could... So exciting. And so they said, we'd like to option the rights, which was terrific. And they said, now, look, could you set it in Australia? And I, I sort of had to do a double blink and said why would a Scotland Yard detective be coming (laughs) be in Australia I said that's like having Jimmy Perez come out from Shetland and and sort of solve a crime you know and they said well could you do it though and I said yes I suppose if push comes to shove I'd have to work out how to bring Jack out to Australia and they said great and by the way we don't want Sydney and we don't want Melbourne Oh, well done, everyone. They said, we want a different landscape. And I said, well, then it's going to be South Australia. And they said, great. And I thought, are they mad? Nothing happens here. (coughs) But then stuff does happen here of a criminal nature. We're We're quite strange, actually, down here. So I thought, yeah, okay." So I contacted my retired... Scotland Yard detective and I contacted my retired very senior South Australian detective and said how am I going to do this can you guys work out how Jack is going to be solving a crime in Adelaide and they said yeah we can do that so they worked it out and I was able to find a way to actually have him coming out to South Australia. He's not here formally and he's not here working on an operation like you've read previously. So he's alone and he has no real backup, no formal backup from the South Australian police, but they're there in the background. They sort of know what he's up to and they're going to lend help if required. So that made it quite fun to be working in this different environment with him without all his usual team and the bells and whistles around him that he normally has. So suddenly I'm in Adelaide with Jack thinking, right, well, we'll go to Rundle Street and have a coffee on Rundle Street. It's so weird. It was so weird writing it. And we'll wander through the Botanic Gardens and we'll... It was totally strange but fun at the same time. And a lot of local people have been involved to help me because I didn't have those, the cast, the normal cast that's around him to play with. So I had to introduce all these new characters from Adelaide. So his sort of romantic involvement is a mother. I'm not going to say any more, but I'm sure every mother in this suburb is thinking, was it you? Is it-? <laughs> Which one of us is it? That got it on with Jack, you know, because I hate you because it should have been me. My hairdresser's in it. I decided to put Kyla in. So Kyla now is so thrilled to be in a Jack book. She has books in her salon and she's signing them for customers. (laughs) I thought, wow, that's reflected glory, Kyla. She's like, oh yeah, I'll sign it for you. I'm on page, you know, there. And she said, and I'm going to talk to Fiona about, you know, being in another book and maybe having an affair with Jack. You know, it's really funny stuff. Where I've got Jack living is at a place called Athelney Cottage in St. Peter's. And the woman who owns that cottage, she is beyond excited that... And so she invited me down and I walked through and she said, so Jack's going to sleep in this bed. And I said... Yes. And she said, now, where's he going to put all his toiletries and things? And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is really, it's hilarious, you know? So I said, oh, well, we'll just use here and, you know, he can cook here because you know he likes to cook. Oh, yes, I know, Jack. So, you know, people are totally into it. So she's great. She's, got, she's showing people through and it's part of her new B&B spiel. <laughs> Detective Superintendent Jack Hawksworth has stayed here as well. And he's on as you can see we're on page, you know, this is where we are. So funny. What else can I tell you? So also I needed to there's going to be a body or two in a in a crime story and I thought gosh, I need to usually I use sort of random pathologists and this sort of thing when you when I'm talking to you and to a reader and saying oh it's in London, I can sort of not fob you off with that, but you just accept it as you're reading. But I can't just say the coroner in Adelaide because you'd all say, well, I know where the coroner sits and lives and I need to know more about that. So I wrote to the coroner and explained what I was doing, expecting them to say, oh, just go away, would you? They didn't. I got this beautiful email from the head coroner who said, come on down, come and see it all. Come and have a coffee with us. She said, we're all rabidly excited. So I got down to the coroner's, the forensic centre where the pathologist, the head pathologist lives, and they were all there really, like, cheering as I walked in. I was like, what, are you all smoking? You know, I'm just... Anyway, so they led me through and they said, "Okay." so she said, come on, scrub up, Fiona. You need to know... And I said, we're not really doing a post-mortem, are we? And she said... No, no, no. She said, no, but you need to know what it's like. And I thought, brilliant, because that's everything I'm about. I like to know what the squeaky boots sound like on the lino kind of thing. So we got all dressed up and we walked through the theatre and I looked at everything and touched everything. And then she took me. You would have seen it on crime shows. You know, the detectives sit behind a, a sort of a window and if they have a question, something like Silent Witness maybe, they... Press on the m- microphone and they say, "How deep is that stab wound?" You know, and they'll say oh, it's about three inches, probably with a, you know, a, a, this sort of knife. And she said, "So this is the microphone where the detectives, you know, can speak to me." Now she's being serious, and I said, "Can I have a go?" And she said, "Sure." So I pressed it, and I don't know what possessed me, and I said, "Can I have a clean up on aisle five, please?" And <laughs> so. All these poor people in the theatre were like, what is going – and she clicked me off and she said, now, stop it, you know, you're not allowed to do that, we've got to be a bit more serious. And then she said to me, do you want to see The Bodies? And I said – because I'd just finished The Orphans, so I felt I knew everything I needed to know about mortuary work and all this sort of thing, and she said, come on then, come and see The Bodies. And we walked to these enormous fridges. They were much bigger than this stage. And she pulled these huge steel sliding doors back. And I looked up, and there were just rows and rows and rows of bodies. But not, I, I didn't look at people. They were all in bags. But it was still confronting and astonishing, thinking she's got to work through, she and her team, have to work through all these people. Incredible. Anyway, so then over a cup of coffee where I thought, oh, I'm tasting, I don't know what I'm tasting, you know. It was was really fun just talking to her and she had such a sense of humour. So I'd love to use her again somewhere. But I said to her, what was your most exciting case that you've worked on? And she said, oh, easy, hands down. She didn't give me the name of it because that would have sort of contravened all sorts of private privacy things. But she said... There was a case where the police were absolutely convinced that murder had taken place, but they couldn't prove it. Nothing could prove that there, were no, there was no evidence to support it, and yet every instinct was screaming at them. And it was a woman who had, been, who had died. And they wanted to prove that a particular man had killed her, but they couldn't so they asked her to please perform the post-mortem she went through the body as you must and she could come up with nothing that pointed to suspicious death death by any suspicion and they said could you have another look and so she said yes I can and so she went through it all over again and rang them and said uh, there's nothing and they were so so disappointed and they said he's going to get away with it unless we can find something. And she said, look, leave it with me. And she decided, I don't know what, she didn't explain why, but she took a mirror, and it's a bit like one of those dentist mirrors, you know, those sort of ones that, and she went through the whole body very carefully, just looking for anything that she could have missed, and she found it. And she found, I won't tell you what, because it's in the story. Because I was so gobsmacked by what she found. And she, we both got goosebumps, even as she was telling me. And I said, did you get him? And she said, we nailed him. He's behind bars. She said, we proved murder with what I found. And so it was brilliant. And I said, can I have that? And she said, it's my gift to you, Fiona. <laughs> she said, let Jack have it, you know. And she said, Only, could, is there any way I could have a sort of an affair with And I said, no. I, <laughs> He's not that kind of guy, but all these women are ready to undress for him. It's just, you know, Kyla, the pathologist. I mean, and I said, and you're married. And she said, I know, but I just, you know, fiction, you could have just, anyway. I said, no. So moved on from her. And then I was at the stage where I had to give a title to the publisher. We work a long way out with things like this. And they said, so what are we going to call this book? And the the book I I was going to call it Cold Chain. I haven't even told you what the book's about. Can somebody remind me about that moment where I just said Cold Chain? So let me quickly tell you a rough thing about the book, and then we'll come back to that because it's relevant. So the story of this story is reproductive medicine and the transfer of human reproductive material across the globe. Now that is happening in real life every single day it is crisscrossing the globe eggs embryos semen you name it anything to do with the internal workings that give us a child is being that those tissues are being transported across the world but none of us know that and you would not know how it's happening but i do <laughs> And Jack does. And so we are going to enter a story where there is a black market for this this all this material. and Jack cracks onto this scam that's underway. Now, when we meet him, and I won't spoil anything, he's not, in at Scotland Yard he's actually taken a sabbatical for anyone who's read Mirror Man you'll remember what happened to him at the end of Mirror Man so he needs to take a sabbatical and he's lecturing at a London university to a group of students on criminology and whilst he's there he something happens to one of his students and in trying to help this student he uncovers something that makes all his alarm bells go off and it sets him off on this journey to ask his chief could we look into this more and his he poses that he believes the Mr Big as they call this perpetrator is potentially in Australia and he said can I have permission to follow my nose and find out more. And so she signs off, not on an operation, but a single man, single detective with no formal, she'd disown him if he did anything untoward, on his own, just going on holiday to Australia, uh, but finding out more with the permission of the police, and as it turns out, the South Australian police. So that's the premise of the story. That's what you're gonna get. So now coming back to the title, so the, ti- the, the process of m- moving these materials across the world is called a cold chain. You have to maintain a cold chain. So that means all that material has to stay frozen at all times, and it takes quite a long time to cross the world, obviously. You've, many of you have done it, so it takes all those same hours, and I said cold chain. How's that for a title, thinking it's fabulous? And they said, no, we don't like that. And I said, oh, gosh. So then I tried something else, and they said, no, 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 no. And I was coming up with this, no, this, no, this, uh, no, no, no. And it went on and on and on until I was so so over titles for this story I I remember I was I was not slumped at my desk but I was really over it and I'd been reading something somewhere I don't know why and the words dead tide came up and I thought well they can just have that that sounds spooky enough so I said dead tide anyway they everyone in the publishing house came back and said yes yippee that's it and I said There's no tide. There's no beach in the story. And they said, oh, it doesn't matter. It sounds good. And I said, it does matter. It matters to my readers. Why is it called Dead Tide where there's no beach or no? And they said, oh, we'll just get around it, you know? And I said, no. And they said, well, what are you going to do? Write a beach in? And I said, yes, I am. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this book back and I'm going to rewrite the end of it. And I'm going to go to Wallaroo Beach. And so I was off to Wallaroo Beach. So now there's another person in, on North Beach who's showing guests around saying, "And Detective Superintendent Jack Hawksworth has slept here and done more than you can imagine in this bed. So... All the people of Wallaroo. yeah, yes, we saw him, yes, we met him, yes, it was a you know it's so much fun, it's just so much fun, and Trisha Stringer, who many of you I hope have read, she met me when I came to Wallaroo, and she said, "What are you doing yeah i'm going to show you around and she was talking about as though Jack was in the car with us, you know she said, and of course you'd like that, wouldn't you, jack and we were i I was like in an alternate reality for the for the whole time I was writing this book. People just get Very excited when it's local. So yes, Wallaroo is this fabulous set of scenes and it was great fun and it gave me my beach, but it didn't necessarily give me a dead tide. Why? Because we don't have dead tides in Australia. We have dodge tides. And we might even have, at best, what we might accept as a slack tide, but we don't have a dead tide. Dead tide is a British terminology and so i just didn't know what to do and i i kept circling people and saying what are we going to do and Tricia was saying oh i don't know if you know i mean we just don't call it that here you know we all know a dodge tide but we don't know and i said so tell me how a dodge tide works and she told me all about it and i said yeah i can make it work but anyway this lovely man made the mistake of saying, oh, I don't mind answering this. What, how can I help you? And he was in the port authority. And his name's Michael Sim and Sims. And I said, this is what I need to do. And once I had him, I wasn't going to let him go. And he said, oh, we can make that work. We can do it like this, and you can do that. And I thought, great. Haven't finished with you, Michael. On this lovely big coastline, if I wanted to do blah, 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 how would I do that? And he said you're going to tell my boss if I tell you? And I said, no. And I didn't want to say I'm just going to write a book about it. That's... <laughs> so he said, well, if I was going to do that, this is how I would do it. And it was brilliant. Absolutely. And so I said, great, that's what I'm going to do. So there was one, and I use, I've used it all in the story, and there was one more missing jigsaw piece to the whole thing. And that was I needed to understand... IVF technology. Now I have experienced IVF technology. I've, I have twin sons who in fact, it's their birthday today, they turned 32 today so they 32 years ago well 33 years ago mother we beat mother nature with science because she was determined that I wasn't going to have children and IVF made it possible for me to have children so I'm very very grateful to it and when I was thinking about how what story am I going to write next I like to take Jack into quite original situations rather than the straight-out serial killer, you know, that a lot of crime books can be around serial killing. And if I do have a a lot of deaths in a row by somebody, there will be a reason why they are doing this. There will be a very personal and connected reason. They're not just psychopaths on the loose, so to speak. So I needed something really fresh and original, and I thought, well, I remember when I was going through IVF that... Has anyone else here been through, or maybe you don't want to say, but anyone who has ever struggled to have a child or who has gone through IVF will know that you enter a new headspace. It's a sort of a crazy time in your life where you do go just a bit balmy because everyone seems to have a child except you. And every child is a baby in that moment, and you're the only one who's not pushing a pram around. And it just plays with your head. But what people don't realise is that they don't have to stop talking about babies, and they don't have to t- tell you, not tell you that they're pregnant, because you 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 show joy for them. It's just that you want that same joy for yourself, so you don't feel anything bad for them or jealousy. But there is envy. It's not jealousy. There is a slight difference, I think. Playing with words here. Where was I? Anyway, so i I'd, I'd done IVF and. One of the things I remember most is that when I was at the clinic, Ian and I had decided that we would only have three goes, and after those three goes, if it hadn't worked, we were going to get on with our life and our marriage and have a fabulous life and spend all our money on ourselves and not on children, which is how it usually goes. But in that clinic were loads of couples, and particularly the women, because I related to the women. There was such desperation and anxiety. And some were on their 15th go, 17th go, 22nd go, which meant 20 years or so of trying without success. You know, and getting to that pointy end of their sort of fertility period where they could even produce what was required to make a baby of their own so there was this real anxiety and sort of twisted twisted nature to the whole thing and I thought wow wouldn't it be good to press into that dark space and see how far would a couple but particularly a vulnerable woman go to get that child how far would she what would she accept and by the flip side how far would a clinician go who had the capacity to give her what she needed how far would that clinician go to deliver that opportunity to that woman and so into that dark and twisted little corridor sits dead tide you know so as soon as I'd thought that through I thought oh this is a book you know this is a book just waiting to be written how did we get onto that think back quickly where were we we'd done the titles one person one person tell me where we are put your hand up and tell me where we are I told you about Trisha I told you about Michael Sims giving me that lovely thing oh yes I know I know see I knew we'd get there The final missing jigsaw piece, yes, remember me saying that? Well done. We're not dementing, all of us, was the embryologist. I needed to get that kind of expertise to teach me about IVF because when I did IVF, it was 33 years ago. And this book is being set in 2009, something like that. So I needed to bring that technology up to date and make sure that I was playing in the right space for that technology. And so I met this gorgeous, gorgeous embryologist who was just licking her lips at the idea of, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. And she said, so we're going to break the law? And I said, absolutely, we're going to break the law. And she said, you're not going to tell my boss, are you? And I said no I'm just going to write a book about it but so break the law with me and she said oh this it's okay this is how it's going to work if you're going to do this then we need to do that and you'll need this person and that person doing this and she worked it all out. it was just so fantastic and she gave me all the science and all the extra science required to pull off the sort of black market syndicate scam that is underway in this story and she's absolutely brilliant. And she's already written to me and said, when are we doing the next one? <laughs> I said, I can't keep writing about reproductive medicine. And she, she said, oh, I've read the, she said, I've read the, the sort of, not the galleys, but I sent her her section so that I was getting it right. And she said, I really like this Jack Guy, you know, I don't, you know, I don't suppose, I said, no, 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 you're about to have a baby, no. So he is a bit addictive like that. He is sort of, I mean, he's under my skin. He said, I certainly enjoy writing him. And the reason I've written him in this way and Everyone who hasn't read him, you need to, to understand what we're all laughing about. When I started writing him in 2007, we were going through that period in particularly television shows of crusty old detectives. You know, they, they sort of had egg stains on their ties and they were widowers or they were drunks or they were, I don't know, they, they just weren't pleasant but they were brilliant at what they did and they were sort of unattractive. And I know you all love Vera. I'm sure you do. I don't. I find, I find that bucket hat and that bloody coat. I'd like to push her off a cliff in her Jeep, actually. I prefer Jimmy Perez. Yes, he makes my nipples stand on end. It's, Vera doesn't do it for me. And neither did those old, crusty guys in the basement who were working on coal cases. Who were they? Them, right? So we were all into that sort of thing. And so I thought, now I'm going to write a really handsome sort of... ..guy who's going to be, you know, a bit Mr. Darcy. I wanted Mr. Darcy on the page. So I wrote Mr. Darcy and he became Jack Hawksworth. So... You know, I really, I've sort of fallen in love with him. And I know there are plenty of women out there who really are enjoying him because he's, you know, he bakes, so he's a bit quirky. He bakes and he, he's quite domesticated and yet he's quite distant, he's hard to reach. And he will not give DCI Kate Carter what she wants. He said to me last night, we were on, I, was, I did a sort of a dinner talk and, and somebody said, Fiona, I think when you get to book 25 of Jack, because I want that many. She said, when you get to book 25, can you kill Kate Carter? And she said, can Jack just kiss her as she's dying so that she gets what she really wants? And I said, if we get to book 25, I promise you I'll kill Kate Carter and we'll do that. Because he's a bit like James Bond. There has to be a new woman with each, with each book because he, he's not married with children and going to that same sort of home all the time so I've really got to invent ways to get him sort of entangled with a woman each time because I know you want it I want it I don't want to write a book of Jack where he's there's no romantic sort of moment so that's part of the challenge is finding who the lucky girl is going to be so yes I want to let you know that there will be another Jack book after this one and it came about like this if I take you back to Around November last year, I was on tour for the orphans, right? I was on a national six-week tour for a book called The Orphans that some of you may have already read, and that's historical. So in the middle of that tour, it was six weeks long and quite, quite taxing, I had to go to England to go and get research this year's story and next year's story right so I had to go and get all these bits and bobs I needed so I had to dash into England and then I had to dash back sounds glamorous it's not it's all I'm not sitting on a Paris sidewalk sort of (laughs) sipping absinthe and 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 sort of thinking how marvelous the world is none of that it's like rush 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 anyway I came back and I picked up They gave me 48 hours, and I was back in my suitcase and off around the rest of Australia. Anyway, then Penguin said to me, as I was coming to the end of my tour in the middle middle of December, they said, you know, Fiona, if you can give us next year's book before Christmas, it's okay. They knew I was coming towards the end. They said, if you can do it before Christmas, it would make it a lot easier to get it out we could do so much more work on it, you know, and we could play with the cover, play with this, play with that. And they said, if you could do it, it would be amazing. So I thought, well, I will. So I did, and I got it to them on around the 18th or something of December, and they were very, very happy, right? So then on the 21st of December, when I was sort of making pastry for my mince pies and things like this, because I was thinking lovely, lovely, lovely family time, Christmas baking, endless baking, I got a phone call from my editor who said, now, don't shoot the messenger, all right? She said, we're just wondering, Fiona. And I thought, oh, no. She said, could you just put out a quick Jack book for us? And I said, when would you need it by, Ali? It's the 21st of December, and we've got to get through Christmas. So let's say we're at the 1st of January. When would you need it by? She said, hmm last date end April and I was like you're joking you're joking like a full Jack book and she said could you have a go and I was like wow that would mean I'd have to climb on a plane tomorrow anyway I left on the 3rd of January to go to London and get all the Jack material that I could get I had no story at all for this, because I'd just finished Dead Tide. It was just, you know, we were about to put Dead Tide out. And I thought, well, between me getting on a plane in Adelaide and getting off at London Heathrow, I need a story. So it was like, don't talk to me. To all the people who, you know, get all the hostesses and everything coming through, stop it, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And by the time I got there, I had an idea for a story and gathered up all the information, met my retired detective and said, what do you think, can we do this? He said, yeah, it's a great idea. And we, I can take you to some places right now where police would have gone and all this sort of thing. So we gathered up some wonderful information and I came home and set to. So I want you to know I'm... I'm about nearly 30,000 words into the next Jack book for you. So you will have Jack clutched to your bosoms in January 2024. So we'll get it out for you for January 2024. Thank you. And in the meantime, you'll get a book in nove- next November, next October, November, called The Sugar Palace, which is the new historical story. And that will be set entirely in Sydney. So, sorry we've gone to the big, big smoke. I did The Orphans in South Australia, which was fantastic to set a book here. Really well supported as well. But Sydney will be fun. It's the roaring 20s. And I thought I was writing a story. It's called The Sugar Palace, so it's about confectionery. And I thought I was writing all about sugar. I thought there was going to be sugar dusting in the air, you know? I thought I was going to breathe it, inhale it. Before I knew it, I was in brothels with razor gangs. (laughs) So we've got candy floss and prostitutes. I don't know how that's happened. And my editors read it and she said, I don't know how you've pulled it off. But she said, it's great fun and it's a lovely story. So that's coming to you at the end of this year. But I am busy, as I've told you on Jack. But also after April, the minute they release me from Jack, I will start writing The Fallen Woman, which is the story for 2024 and I've just pitched in 2025 for you, which will be back in Australia. So I'm like a hamster in a hamster wheel, but a very happy hamster in my happy hamster wheel, writing books for you. Before we throw open to questions, oh, I'm already there, aren't I? Look, we want to take some questions. I was gonna tell you a funny story, but I think we should have questions from the audience, please. And They want the funny story. Well, there's two little stories about, it was about reproductive medicine. I thought I'd tell you two little things that happened to us whilst we were trying to get pregnant. And the first one was we did the first cycle and they said to us, oh, beautiful, beautiful embryos, Fiona, just lovely. They're triple A grade. And I was like, oh, gosh, aren't we amazing, Ian? So they said now, but they're very dour. The scientists are very dour. So they said, would you like to come and see your embryos, Mrs. McIntosh? And I said, I would, you know, thinking what's this all about? So I think we went up to Calvary and they wheeled something in as big as this building. It was like a big squeaky thing they wheeled in with this huge glass top. And beneath it were three little Petri dishes. Each one was as big as my, the lens of my glasses. And they had three little Petri dishes with a huge microscope. And they said, we'll let Fiona go first because she is the mother. And uh, so I said, right. And I looked at Ian thinking, I hope I don't laugh or any nervous laugh. You know, don't or fart or something like that, you know, so nervous. So I, I look in this, you know, this huge microscope. And I just couldn't help myself. I saw this beautiful little thing there and I said, oh, Ian, it's got your enormous nose. (laughs) And they were so angry, really angry with us because we rolled about laughing. And he was saying, yeah, it's probably got your club foot though. And we went, you know, we went on and on and on like this. And in the end they said, no, I'm sorry, you're not taking this seriously enough wheeled it back out again took our babies away from us so but we weren't successful with that cycle with the IVF so the next time we tried so this was the second time we were going to try it of our three they said we'd like you to try gift which is a more natural situation where they take the egg unfertilized Sorry for all this technicality. They put it in the fallopian tube. No test tube involved. So straight into the mother's fallopian tube. And then they introduce the father's sperm into that tube. And they sew you back up and let mother nature now take over. And just see. Because it is more natural. It's a more natural environment for that egg and sperm than being in a test tube so they said right we're going to try this now they said Fiona you didn't take us very seriously last time now this is all about timing all right timing 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 when you're on our table legs akimbo unconscious we need Ian providing the magic juice at the right (laughs) at the right time so we said, fine, yes. No, we're not stupid, you know. <laughs> but I am married to a very vague man. <laughs> very vague man. And I'll give you an example of that vagueness. Today, I, whilst we were away recently, very recently, last week... Somebody took my, not took my card, but used my card's number and were gaily buying things in Apple, in Walmart in America, wherever they were, they were buying things with my card's number. So the bank picked it up, we picked it up, and we cancelled that card, which, as you know, is like you know it's like the end of the world isn't it so I was thinking about all the streaming services I had to new numbers all this sort of thing anyway so I was waiting for the new card to arrive and Ian went down to the post office today and he said your card's here and I said fantastic so he came home and he 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 said oh I'll get it all ready for you I know you're busy getting ready I was getting ready so he opened the envelope and he said right here's your new card now you go and register your new, your activated, and I'll get rid of the other one. So he, he shredded it. You know what he did. You know what he did. So I'm looking at my dumbass card that sort of was never going to work because it's been cancelled, and. He said, no, I gave you the new one. And I said, you didn't, Ian, because look at it. It's all battered and used where I just tap everything I can in sight. You know, and he said, you're joking. And I said, no, ring the bank and tell them what you've done. He said, I don't know how I did. I said, yeah, and you can see I'm not even angry because I half expected it. You know, it's sort of, we'll wait another 10 business days for my card to come. So, this is what we're dealing with. Anyway, so now I'm getting ready to, for my precious situation. I'm unconscious. I'd said to Ian, Ian. This is pre-mobile phones, okay? It's 1990. And I said, Ian, you need to stick by the phone, okay? Yeah, I'm not dumb. I know what I'm doing. So I said, okay, please, please stick by the phone. I'm going to be in the hospital. And then when they give you the word, you've got to... He said, do I do... I said, no, you come to the hospital and do it. You don't do it here because you can't keep it safe and all. You'll lose it. You'll... I don't know. Anyway, so I'm now unconscious on the table... They've got me all prepped and ready. My gorgeous fallopian tubes are flapping and waiting for, you know. The egg is found, beautiful egg. In it goes. We're all happy. Where's the, you know, where is it? And they said, we can't find Ian. We can't find him. And they said, well, we haven't got long. He needs to hurry up. So we're all, I'm, I'm asleep. I don't know what's going on. They're probably playing music, just waiting. Everybody's sort of drumming. And he has gone into the garden. <laughs> he went into the garden, and like all gardeners, just got lost. Maybe pruning or, I don't know. <laughs> completely forgetting that this was an enormous day in our lives. Anyway, they were about to give up, but he came in and could hear the phone ringing and thought, <sharp> You know, answer the phone, and they said, where have you been? And he said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And they said, you need to get yourself down here real fast, and we mean go through red lights if you have to kind of thing. So he screeched down there. So he arrived with high blood pressure, as you can imagine, sort of like, oh, my gosh, I can't let her down, you know. And they said, "Here, you know, they got a jar, like that they gave him his little jar and they said get on with it and hurry up so they're they're standing behind the door and they've sort of pushed him into this room and he said he got into the room and it was huge he said it was this huge room and it had glass it had windows all around it no blinds no nothing just windows and he was like I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And they were like, come on, Ian. And he was like, I can't. There were, he said, there were no magazines. There was no busty nurse coming to help me. There was nothing. And so in this terrible room, he said he backed up into a corner and then he turned around. <laughs> so sad. Anyway, so now I'm, I'm waking up you know and he's there holding my hand looking very sheepish and embarrassed and I said what's wrong and he said I could only get a drip out I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and I I said oh Ian what happened he said I'm just so sorry anyway 32 years later these boys it only took a drip And I've just remembered this is being recorded. So, (laughs) sorry, Ian. But he does walk tall now. He thinks he's like a legend. If you need any help in that department, you know, he's pretty good. Maybe we've got some time for some, if there are any. I just wanted to end on that happy, jolly note. (laughs) Anyone, I can't see you, so I'm hoping someone can see you if there are... Any questions at all? Yes. Uh,
0: I sort of think. Co- Sorry. You
1: go. I think I know the answer, but you set it in two thousand and eight. So is that to follow on all the other four? Yes. So the others begin. I think the first one is two thousand and three. So Bye Bye Baby starts in two thousand and three, and then each one it's, you know a year to eighteen months later, depending on what I've done to Jack. So in Miraman. I hurt him, and so he needed to recover from that, from that injury. So I'm trying to bring him up to date, but there's a lot of books. Not, she might get her 25 books and the death of Kate Carter out of it whilst I try and catch him up to us where we are. Yes, there's a, I'm just going to wait for the microphone because we're being recorded, and everybody wants to hear your lovely dulcet tones. Pass it down, pass it down. There we go. Thank you.
0: I was just wondering how you did your research for the French Promise, which was the one before the, or it came after the the Lavender Keeper.
1: Yeah, that was a very emotional book to write. And how did I do it? I went to Auschwitz. It was the only way that I could write that book was to go and experience the absolute cold horror of that place, which even today holds so much despair. And I could really feel it, you know, whilst I was there. And we went deliberately in winter so that it would be as cold as possible in Poland. And the day that we went out to Auschwitz, it was uh, raining. So it was about as bad as it could get. So it was freezing rain. And I remember not even wanting to step out, but we did. Off we went. And Auschwitz proper isn't... I don't want to say nearly as bad, everything about it is bad, but it's, the, it's Birkenau, the women's prison, that is the most horrifying of all, actually. And as you go through Birkenau, when you step back, you can see, and it's still there, the railway tracks leading up to nothing. So the railway tracks just end. So it was a a track to nowhere, and that's where they must have known their lives were going to come to an end. So that's how I began. I began with Auschwitz to put me in that deep, dark, contemplative mood. And from there, it was all about France, making sure I got that aspect of France right. And then out to marvellous Tasmania to get that side of the story absolutely correct. Because that's based around a real lavender farm called Bridgestow. So I needed to go to Bridgestow, meet the people who own it. Oh, they love it. They love that they're part of the story. And in fact, their names are Ravens. and I And I realised that was a German name. And so I made his real name was Ravensburg so they love and they say oh meet the Ravensburg we're Luke's people you know <laughs> we're Luke so people really take the, this stuff on it was it was a towering piece of research because it, it took me far and wide and was also very emotional all the time so thank you for that for that question that's the kind of research I do all the time I I've always asked myself, where does the reader want to armchair travel with me? And most often you answer me and say, Paris, Fiona. Take us to Paris. So I'm always flitting to Paris on your behalf. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I do like to take you to far-flung places. And I do like to, for each book, it doesn't matter if it's featuring London again, I will go to London for that specific book not just because I love London, but if you're in the headspace of a book, then you will do better research. If you're just thinking, oh, I'll grab everything I can here, and in three years I'll write a book that might feature London, that's not my, that's not my M.O. I tend to, every time I'm going to write a book, I will go to every single place in that story, and often to other places. I once went to Morocco on your behalf, in case I needed to use it in a story. Uh, It was lovely. But I did end up using Marrakesh in the following book because I'd been there and I thought, well, I have to use it. But sometimes I do a little bit extra just to gather up in case we need to take the story wider, further. So the, the next English sort of book you'll get will be set in Salisbury, which I'm really looking forward to. And I've just been invited to Blenheim Palace, so I'm going to set some big scenes in Blenheim Palace. And they've said, yeah, Fiona, come. What do you want to do? What do you want to see? So very lucky. I don't know. I must, that must be my superhero power that I can persuade people to help me when I'm writing books. Because people are very kind to me with all the books that I've written. I've had a lot of expert help on my side. Any other questions at all? I don't want to leave any stone unturned. Yes, there's a lady just here. or a gentleman, sorry.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, Who did you model Jack on? Someone you knew?
1: Not personally, but I would uh, love to and I would undress for this person if they need (laughs) any. I would undress for Hugh Jackman any day. I wrote Jack for Hugh Jackman in 2008. But Hugh Jackman is now a lot older than Jack is in the story. So even though we're going to hopefully get a screen adaptation of these stories, I don't think it's going to be Hugh unless anyone in this room knows him personally and can connect me. But likely not Hugh Jackman, but we will, you know, I'll take, look, I will take Chris Hemsworth. Wouldn't you? I'd take Chris Hemsworth. I'd take any Hemsworth. But yeah, there's going to be some fabulous dark haired beautiful guy who will play Jack and I just I, I I'm happy if it's an Australian but he he is a grammar school boy from England so they would need to do the accent correctly to get it right so but it was Hugh Jackman thank you this lady here had a question thank you due to an eye issue that I've had I've
0: started to listen to audiobooks. ah is it when you write, do you write an audio book, or does somebody just sit and read your book? Is it uh,
1: written differently? No, it's not written differently. So they take the manuscript, exactly the same one that is that we would read in print, and he would. In this case it's a guy called Jerome who's performing it and he performs that book for you. Not silly voices, but he will, he will try and sort of change the voices up a little so you know when Jack's talking and you know when Kate's talking and you know when some of the other characters are talking. But yeah, they're given 500 pages and, and told to make sure it's, it's crystal clear and word perfect and a performance. So it's exactly the same and it comes out in the same week as the book comes out so it's always available to download in audio from the get-go because we don't like people not having access to the audio straight away because otherwise you'll end up saying la 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 don't talk about it because i need to hear it so we make sure it's all done at the same time which is lovely thank you i'm glad you're listening that's fantastic i mean listening is exploding isn't it everybody's loving listening to books and doing other things at the same time which is brilliant any other questions lovely p oh here's okay and then that gentleman there yeah i was just wondering about jack do you have any i'm always wondering about jack too we all are do you have any would you have any control over how the character is there's so many books that have been adapted to screen Mm. and they're nothing like the book i know it's my great fear is that look they own the rights for the screen so as long as they own those rights they could make jack a woman if they want to, but we would kill them, okay? <laughs> All of us, we would go. And, but I think because they know that I, I've, Jack is my creation, I think they have already intimated that they would love it if I could help consult on... Because it would help their cause to be able to have their screenwriters say to me, would Jack do this, would Jack say that, or would he do this? So to have that kind of Rolls-Royce help on tap... I think they'll make use of it. So I, won't, I don't have any say, no, but if they come to me, I'll help all I can to make sure he's as beautiful on screen as he is in a book. <laughs> and I will be doing the casting <laughs> naked. <laughs> Get your clothes off. Let's just have a look at them. <laughs> there was a lovely... There was a gentleman here. Yes, yeah, sorry. Just here. Thank you. Yes, I can relate to that. If you talk about Jack Reacher books... Jack is six foot five and they made the films with Tom Cruise. I know. He's four foot nothing. It's a real it's I understand. It's a real shame because look, I want to just say that I love Tom Cruise and I love him as Ethan Hawke, and I love him in a lot of Maverick. Love him as Maverick. He's not Jack Reacher. And what the hell was in their heads? But I think we will find, if we dig close enough, that probably Tom Cruise optioned those books. And the only way they were going to get them made and get people to throw money at it was for him to star in it. But it was a very bad call. Because Jack Reacher is so popular that if... Why would you think a man of five foot seven was going to, in any way, please the people who love the guy who's towering you know I agree with you it was a very wrong call and it's a shame because he's better than that he's a he's a good actor in those action shows and they shouldn't have done it I'm trying to think who should have done it who's saying Liam Neeson yeah yes I mean he's got the height yeah I just always think of him saying those words and I will kill you yeah. <laughs> I always say that when one of my sons is going away. Tell whoever's driving you or flying you, if you don't turn up when I'm... And I will find you and I will kill you.
0: <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't actually
1: my question. Oh! <laughs> do you well, want to talk about well, Jack Hawksworth no, no. as well? Yes, well, I do, actually. But I was wondering how, when you write one of the Jack Hawksworth books and you finish it, how do you turn your brain off and go and write something else totally different. Well, I'll tell you now, all the men in the room won't won't get this. But I'm a woman. (laughs) And we are amazing. Do you know, when we were raising our families, we could do a hundred things at once. For our vague husbands as well. So I think it is... I just think I compartmentalize really well, and I do think most women can compartmentalize. So unless it comes to really emotional stuff, then we have to just cry, because that's, you know, and then get ourselves together. But for the most part, we can do this, we can do this, we can do that, and we can do that all at the same time. So I have no struggle at all writing Jack in the morning and writing historical in the afternoon. Doesn't bother me in the slightest. I just stop and move to that. Making a lunch for my children, lunch boxes, sorting Ian's breakfast out. It's as simple as that. It's just finding his underpants, you know? It's as simple as that. I but don't I do. it is, it really, I can't tell you that there's any struggle at all because there's not. not. Well, I'm sorry for the stupid question. <laughs> Lokes are great for certain things. They're just brilliant, you know. You spoke about Bryce Courtney being your mentor, yes. How did he go about you how to write? Okay, that is such a big question. How did he teach me? So he used to hold this not annual, but every two to three years, he would have a summer fiction writing course, and he would usually hold it in Tasmania for five days. And I happened to see that being advertised and I went down for that course and there were 15 people in the room. But do you know when he was lecturing, there was, I felt like there was only one person in the room and that was me. And the lecturer was talking only to me. It's like everybody else faded to grey. But other people have said the same thing. They said, well, it felt like I was the only person in the room and you'd gone. So he had this incredible talent to make you feel as though you were the most important person here and that he was talking to you. And really, he led by example. So he he would just break down some of his stories for us and show us what he was trying to do. And everything he said, for me personally felt like a drop of gold or a jewel that he was giving to me until I had, you know, a sort of a a two hands full of jewels that I was going to take back. And he did say to me at the, I think I said this, at the end of the course, he said to me, you're the one. You've really, I can see it's just, you've taken everything I've said on board. I've seen that through the exercises, you've been giving it back to me and showing me that you were listening. You've done all the homework, Fiona. You've just got to trust yourself and put it all into practice. And so that's what I did. And the the thing was that about 12 years later, he rang me up and said, as he did, rather confrontingly, darling, I'm dying, and I need you to help me run the final course. I want to do one more of these masterclasses. Will you come and help me? And I, I was writing a book, and I wasn't so as fast as I am now, and he said, look, darling, darling, it's 90 minutes on the ground. I'm going to fly you into Canberra. You're going to come and stand there so I can point to you and say, if you do what I tell you, you too can be like Fiona, and then you can go to your plane and you can fly off again. And I said, okay, all right, well, that, of course I'll come. So I came, and when I arrived, he tricked me. So he was really, really ill. He could not get out of his chair. He was so ill, and I said, Bryce, what are you doing? Why are you wasting time with this sort of stuff? When, And he said, yeah, I know, but I just wanted one more. And he said, I need to sort of draw a line under it. And I said, well, how are you going to do this course for five days? And he said, well, you see, darling, I'm not. You are. <laughs> So he'd got me there, and I said, what? And he said, you're going to run this course, and I'm going to hand you the baton when when you're finished. And that's what he did. So I then had to run this course for him. He just sat there and nodded or, you know, gasped. And he said to me, oh, you're such a dragon, Fiona. You're so cruel. He said, did I ever talk to you like that? And I said, no, but they're crap, and we've got to make sure they're not crap by the time... (laughs) you know I don't mean that that's a terrible thing to say they weren't they weren't because they were each of them brilliant in their own way but there was so much to be done so much work to be done and I said we've got to in five days turn them into confident commercial fiction writers who can go out and and I said and you're too kind and I've just got to show them how it is it's like this when you're a new new writer you've got to be Re- you've got to pull it all down from the clouds and become, take on the reality of what you're trying to do, which is you're entering big business where dollars drive the whole thing. So he said, God, I could never do that. You just hurt their feelings. And I said, No, they're fine. You've just got to trust me. Anyway, when it was done, I had to keep the masterclass going. And I thought, Well, I'll, I'll just do one and let Bryce know that I've, I've done it, I've kept my promise. But it filled really quickly. And so when I said, no, there's only one, they said, oh, that's not fair. What about us? And I said, OK, I'll do one more and we'll do that and we'll. And so it kept having a tail where people said, well, that's not fair. So here we are, 13 years later, and I've done I don't know how many masterclasses. And we've got about 450 people, writers and if I said to you, Tricia Stringer, and if I said to you, Mercedes, Mercia, if I said Kate McMahon, these are all names of top selling new writers who are now on their second or third books and they're all from the masterclass. We've got about 25 writers with the majors now and I think Bryce just smiles. Wherever he is, he just smiles and thought, yeah, I knew you could do it. So the masterclass is just this huge thing that just keeps rolling. And we now have our own national conference. Michael Robotham was our headline act last last time we did it. And the first time we did it, we had a couple of publishers. This year, we've got our NatCon and we've got 12 publishers coming. You know, it's just fantastic. And we're doing our first ever masterclass in the UK. So we're taking Australians to the UK To do their masterclass and then they can go out and do some research with me and I'll show them what I do when I get there so it's really growing and it's a fantastic gift that he gave to the writing community and you know I'm in touch with all those wonderful people who were in that last masterclass I didn't say that four-letter word I didn't say crap they weren't crap okay that's for the recording Let's hope they're not listening they weren't they just didn't know what they were doing and you never do know what you're doing when you're first writing you need a guide you need a guide to just say you know character development is really important your character can't be static and dialogue is vital and how are you going to build this world around your audience i mean it's just there's a lot of stuff to juggle so doing this masterclass gives them confidence to go out and do just that so he did that for me, so I'm paying it forward. I promised him I would. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you all. So, for our June podcast, myself and my lovely colleague Griffin will be exploring what those in the know are calling the biggest literary trend of 2023, which is literature, or witch lit, or wit lit. Or hexing the patriarchy, etc. etc. So we'll be reading Amelia Hart's best-selling novel, Wayward. We'd really love for you to read along with us and join us in June to see what you think. The City of Marion recognises that the Literary Anything podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Ghana people, and we recognise the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the land.